0: Our sermon today is taken from Exodus 1, verses 1 to 22. This is the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all the generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens they built for pharaohs store cities pythum and ramses but
1: they the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the egyptians were in dread of the people of israel so they ruthlessly made the people of israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field in all their work, they were ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and gave birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded to all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Thus says the word. Thanks,
2: Wilson, and for trying to pronounce all those words that I can't pronounce either. Sh- sh- shifra, yeah, so I'm with you, man. Thanks. So guys, we're going to start uh, our series through the book of, well, it's not really a series through the book of Exodus. We're going to start a series on the life of Moses, uh, which will cover a lot of the book of Exodus, maybe not all of it, but for sure the first few chapters of it. And we've done series on biblical characters in the past. If you remember, we've done uh, uh, Jonah, we've done Jacob, we've done a few other people. But this one, because it's taking us through the book of Exodus, it's a bit more daunting to me. Because one, the book of Exodus is meant to be read as a part of a whole section of the Torah, the first five books of, of, of the Old Testament: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's like it's like reading Harry Potter. You can't just read one book. You've you got to know the whole series in order for it to make sense to you. Exodus is just one book out of five, the Torah. So it's daunting because I, you kind of have to know a lot about the Torah to get the whole story. So we'll be going back and forth through those five books as we, as we talk specifically about Exodus. And two is daunting to me. is because Exodus is sort of a foundational summary of the whole Bible, right? Which is God's redemption story. Here we see God in Exodus, and you, you probably know the story. God redeeming his people out of slavery of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan, right? What's the whole Bible about? If you had to summarize it to one thing, it's a story of God delivering his people out of the slavery of sin to the promised land of, not Canaan, but heaven where he is. So handling this book feels like I'm handling the summary of the whole Bible. That, that's the second reason why I feel it's daunting. And, and at the end of it, I think, though, if we do stick to it faithfully, we'll see God through the author of this book, Moses. This is another thing why it's daunting. We'll see God making pretty exclusive claims about who he is, about how he deals with his people, and an exclusive claim about redemption, which is a hard thing to say, or maybe even, even hear, but let, let's jump to it. Let's see what God has to say. The three things I want to point out in Exodus chapter 1, specifically about God and his people. Point one, where he leads them. Point two, what he wants to show them. Point three, how he's going to shock them. Where he leads them, what he wants to show them, and how he's going to shock them. Point one. Now, there's a Hebrew word here I want us to pay attention to in verse one. Look at verse one in your printouts. It, it, says, um, it says, these are the generations, right? But, but there's a Hebrew word there, actually, that wasn't in the ESV and any, a lot of the other English translation. It's, it's a Hebrew word that should be translated to and. So verse 1, instead of saying, these are the names of the sons of Israel, it really should sound something more like this. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. There should be an and there. And you're like, okay, why is that a big deal? Well, it is a big deal? Because if you think about why you would write the word and before a sentence, it's because you're trying to connect that sentence to the thought process before it. Something happened and then this. You're trying to connect it to what happened before. And this is significant because what Moses is trying to do here with the word and in the beginning of verse 1 that doesn't appear in, in our ESV translation is supposed to signal a connection to the book of Exodus. This is a continuing storyline. This is meant to be read in context of what happened in, I'm sorry, in Genesis, not Exodus, in in the story of Genesis before this. So, okay, this should make us think, which part of Genesis is the author trying to connect us to here in verse one? Well, with Genesis chapter 46, verse two to four and verse eight. Again, about Israel going to Egypt. This is, I think it's up here, okay. Uh, Jacob, Jacob and God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, this is, this is years before verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1, okay? And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And then he skipped to verse 8, and it says, now these are, listen to verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, what does Genesis forty-six verse eight sound like? It sounds like Exodus chapter one verse one, doesn't it? Almost word for word. And you know these are the these are and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And each and then you go on in genealogy. What's the author trying to remind us here? He wants to remind Israel who it is that led them to Egypt. It was God himself, remember in Genesis? God himself led you here. This is unbelievably profound. What's he saying? He's saying, take a look at the situation you're in or that they're in. These people are entering Egypt, a nation that's about to enslave them for 400 years. They're about to go through the toughest season of their life. And who is it that led them there? God did. They were about to hit rock bottom. 400 years of slavery, the toughest season of their life. And God here is saying, it was me. I brought you here. I brought you to rock bottom. And we're thinking, well, that's not very nice, God, you know, to do that. Why would you do that? But here's what's more profound, after listing all the sons and connecting verse 1 to gene- genealogy until verse 6, you go to verse 7. God makes another profound claim. It's crazy. He connects verse 7 once again to Genesis. You've got to stick with me here a little bit because there's a lot of connections that Moses makes. So at verse 7, look at what's happening to Israel. They are fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. They are fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Note two words there. They became fruitful and they multiplied. Does that ring a bell? Of where in Genesis? Does it say to be fruitful and multiply? In Genesis 1. Remember when God made all the animals, made Adam and Eve? He said, be fruitful and multiply. He's trying to connect us to Genesis 1 here. Okay, but then you read the rest of verse 7. So keep that in mind. The rest of verse 7, there's another connection to Genesis chapter 1. They multiplied, in verse 7 of our our text, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The Hebrew word filled there was the same word again used in Genesis chapter 1 when describing the life forms that was popping out left and right, the birds in the sky, the fishes in the ocean, they started to fill, to swarm in Genesis 1. But it's the same Hebrew word, fill and swarm. They started to fill the earth. Now, you're supposed to ask yourself the question why were they in Genesis chapter 1 popping out left and right? Why were they multiplying like rabbits? (laughs) Why were they filling up the land? Why were they swarming the land? Because God's presence was there. I'll I'll connect the dots here in a second. So, Psalm 104, verse 30, just just proof text to prove to you, talking about Genesis 1, the psalmist, when you send forth your spirit, They are created. When God's presence is there, right, the spirit hovered over the waters and all that, when God's presence is there, life was created, and you renewed the face of the ground. This is profound. The reason why life started to multiply like crazy in Genesis chapter 1 is because God's presence was thick in there, in the midst of the land. He was there. Now, what does that have to do with Israel's situation, Being at rock bottom. Think about it. Why were the Israelites producing like rabbits? Why were they popping kids out left and right? Why were they filling up or swarming the land with life? What was the abundance of life a sign of in Genesis 1? It was a sign of God's presence. What is God trying to tell us here? That God's presence was with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1. God's presence was with them even at rock bottom. What are we tempted to say when we're at rock bottom? Where are you, God? Are you here? Because it sure feels like you're not. And God, through Moses, is telling his people, I'm here. I led you to rock bottom, yes, but I didn't leave you there. Now, I'm going to make this this caveat. This doesn't mean that if you biologically can't have children, that God's presence isn't with you. That's not how narratives work. The purpose isn't to make a one-to-one connection like that. Moses isn't saying the number of children you have is a direct sign of God's presence in your life. That's actually the exact opposite of what Moses is trying to say. He's saying that good life circumstances is not always a sign of God's presence, and being at Bok is not always a sign of his absence. That's what he's trying to say. Just look at the Israelites. Even in the worst life circumstances, they've been in rock bottom for 400 years. Yet God is there all along. And you got to know that. you got to know that. If, if this is our worldview, if we think that good earthly circumstances equals God's presence, and if we believe that bad earthly circumstances equals God's absence then life is about to get very confusing and very discouraging because based on that logic someone like Pharaoh in this story who has all the power who has all the money in the world great earthly circumstances by that logic we would conclude that God's presence is with him when in actuality who is he in this narrative he's the grand villain you see how it gets all mixed up if, if, we, if we live life with that worldview? And with that logic, who are the Israelites? Who are the people that are at rock bottom? They're the ones that's been abandoned by God. Where in reality, they're the ones who God has graciously set his presence upon. It'll make life confusing if, if we live life with that worldview. Two, it'll also make life very discouraging. It might even make you a cynical person. Based on that worldview, if we think that earthly success is a proof of God's presence, then we see bad things happen to good people. You know what's going to happen? It's going to be pretty discouraging. You know, he's a, he's a good guy. Why did something bad? Why did you take your presence away from him, God? And then we see good things happen to bad people. Happens all the time. With that worldview, we'd be discouraged again. Why is God approving this guy? See, if we, think, if we think like that, life won't make sense. It'll be discouraging to you, and you'll grow cynical at God. The equation doesn't work. It's not biblical. But we know what the biblical worldview is. As summarized in this passage, you know what God's trying to communicate? That he might lead you to rock bottom. And it's not because he hates you. His presence will remain with you at rock bottom, and he won't leave you. Now the question is, still... Why? Why would God do something like that to people he loves? Why would God do something to me or to somebody else? Well, let's go to our second point. What he wants to show them there. Okay, let's continue in the narrative. Look at what Pharaoh said in verses 8 to 10. Pay attention to the wording there. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. There's that word again. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, if you read that passage at face value, who is Pharaoh challenging? Who is the fight between here? Well, it seems like the fight is between Pharaoh and Israel. He's challenging Israel. He doesn't want Israel to multiply, to grow strong, and then to leave him, right? He likes free labor, okay? So what does he do? Verse 11, he makes them work as slaves, makes them build two, two store cities, Pithom and Ramses, if that's how you pronounce them, right? These store cities are kind of store cities that would uh, uh, take in treasure, gold, silver, even war ammunition sometimes to store them up there. And a lot of commentaries, historians would agree that these, these, these cities we position right out of the gate, out of, out of Egypt to intimidate the Israelites, you know, look how powerful I am, you can never leave, kind of thing. Pharaoh was trying to keep Israel in, keep them small, to not multiply. So yes, at face value, it seems like the fight here is between Pharaoh and Israel. But I'm going to ask you to look one, once again closely at how Rose, Moses wrote this story. That's how narratives in the Bible works. They use words to communicate something. He chose a specific word, and he's trying to communicate something that's not immediately obvious. Look at verse 10 again. What did Pharaoh specifically want to prevent Israel from doing? He wanted to prevent Israel, God's people, from what? multiplying. Remember? Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Multiply. A phrase already strategically used by Moses earlier to point us back to Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, as a part of what? God's will. This is God's command. This is what God wants to happen in Genesis 1. So if God is the one who wills for his people to multiply, Yet Pharaoh is the one preventing from his people to multiply. Who is Pharaoh really going against here? Who's the fight between? And look at the conflict, how the narrative kind of writes the conflict, how it continues. Despite of Pharaoh's efforts to prevent God's will from happening, what did God do in verse 12? But the more they're oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. So Pharaoh pushed back and attacked God's will, but yet God was still able to prevail despite of Pharaoh's attacks. And now Pharaoh, that's how the narrative is going. And now Pharaoh's being pushed back by God because God still got his way and, and his people. Went. You see what's going on here? What Moses is trying to paint? He's trying to show you who's the battle really between. Ultimately, this is a fight between Pharaoh and God. Not Pharaoh and Israel. Now, as as the Israelites, maybe as we read this passage, we're meant to ask ourselves this in rock bottom. Okay, hold on. Maybe this whole thing isn't really ultimately about me as much as I thought it was. Maybe there's something bigger going on behind this pain. Maybe there's something bigger, there's a bigger fight going on behind this heartache maybe there's a bigger, bigger struggle going on behind this depression maybe there's something bigger going on behind this anxiety this physical illness maybe if the Bible is true maybe there's a cosmic battle that all of my sufferings are only a microcosm of that my sufferings are only a taste of through the way Moses wrote this narrative, it seems like that, that's what he's trying to say, that yes, there's something bigger going on. This heartache, this ailment, this whatever it is, it's a part of a bigger storyline, a bigger struggle between God and evil, between God and sin. Maybe that's how I should be viewing my ups and downs, that it's a part of a bigger storyline. Remember, Exodus is meant to be read as a whole, right, the whole Torah, one book within five. And, and if you imagine the Torah, from uh, I, I, the five books, as, as a movie, okay? Who are the constant characters in this movie? It's God and his people. You start with God calling Abraham out. By grace, I've, I've wanted you for myself. Again, by mercy, by grace, right? And then God blessed him with a child, Isaac. And then the story continues about God and Isaac. That's, those are the people. We're we're, 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 the, the movie screen is following here and then after that uh, God bless Isaac with a son Jacob uh, as you read earlier who God led to rock bottom to Egypt right he's here now and then God is, is in rock bottom with them for 400 years and then God's going to redeem them and then, and then after God redeems them God leads them through a desert a lot of tough stuff happened there right, and then God brought them out, what, to the promised land, and then after they're in the promised land, you skip to the later in, in the Old Testament, God brought them, what, the Syrian exile, right, and then, and then the Babylonian exile, you see, there's this movie that through it all, God's trying to say, my presence, I will lead my people through mountain highs, yes, oh, but lows as well, over and over again. And I'm going to win their battles for them. You know what this means? This means means that maybe life isn't about trying to stay on mountaintops and trying to avoid low valleys. That may be not what life is about. Maybe life is all about following God, whether he brings you to mountaintops or to valley lows. You see, we think Christianity is mainly about utilizing God to get us out of trouble. But throughout the Bible, God has been the one who brought his people over and over again into trouble. Maybe, just maybe, Christianity is less about using God to get us out of trouble Maybe it's more about trusting God and staying faithful to him and his commandments, even when sometimes his commandments is exactly the thing that gets us into trouble. What was the result of Israel following God's commands to go to Egypt? It led them to 400 years of slavery. Following God actually made life a lot more difficult. Here is where you're left with the question. If we obey God because it makes life more convenient for us. Or because by doing so, we'll we'll have this trouble life. Or because we'll be blessed by him materially, or, or whatever. If that's why we follow God, who is it we're actually worshiping? Are we worshiping him? Or are we worshiping ourselves? A pastor in the US told a story about a college girl that came to Christ. You know, she said the prayer, did the whole thing right and after a while I think a few months later she came back to meet with the pastor again and she was a little bit more troubled this time she had this look in her face and she she said to the pastor you know pastor I just don't know about this Christian thing what good is it to follow Christ if no boys ever like me for it (laughs) true story I'm not making like this happen as a college girl what good is it to follow Christ if no boys actually like me for it who is your God Who are you worshiping? Is God a useful helper that will keep you on mountaintops? Or is he a king that you'll follow even to valley lows? Now, another thing to keep in mind, not only does the story make the claim that God leads his people to valley lows and remains with his people during those valley lows, but also he'll win their battles and redeem them through their valley lows. Look at how Pharaoh was introduced here in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. What's the word new king meant to show there? That he has a beginning. He's, he's a new kid on the block. Compared to who? Compared to the eternal God. Who's this new king? What's he going to do? Moses is trying to emphasize this grand battle, this, this, this suffering in which, uh, in which your heartaches is, is just a microcosm of this 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 big struggle it was never fair to begin with it wasn't a real fight god was always going to win so one his presence leads you to the fight down valley lows two his presence remains with you through the fight in valley lows and three he will win the fight through valley lows that's what exodus 1 is trying to communicate and all of a sudden if you believe that if you embrace that all of a sudden you're going to stop asking God, what do I need to do to get out of the suffering? But rather, you're going to be asking God, what do you want me to do even if I'm in the suffering? What do you want me to do here? When I come out of it, how I come out of it, that's not my primary concern. That's your business. My business is to worship and obey you. And you know what you'll start to experience? A switch of perspective in life altogether. God will no longer become this financial advisor that's supposed to get you out of bankruptcy. He'll become your king in whom every penny is meant to glorify. God's no longer going to be this time management guru who's meant to tell you how to arrange your life so that you'll always be successful. But God's going to be a king and a lord whom every second belongs to. God will no longer become your relationship counselor who's meant to get you out of singleness but a king in whom you obey throughout your singleness. And I've said this a few times before, I didn't wanna say it because it might be boring to you if you've been here for a while, but if you're new, maybe this could be helpful. Somebody made a really amazing uh, explanation of how, how we often view God as, as a means to an end, as a useful tool, but not as beautiful. We view God as useful, not as beautiful. What's the difference? When something's useful to you, you use that thing to get whatever it is you want. It's a stepping stone to get to something else, right? But when something is beautiful to you, you don't use it as a stepping stone to get to something else. You just embrace it because it's beautiful, because it is the end goal. Why why do you love music? Does music pay the bills? You know, does listening to your favorite song make your stomach any fuller? No, no. Music doesn't have any it's not a stepping stone to anything else. You love music simply because it's beautiful. It's not a means to an end. I wonder if we treat God more as useful sometimes rather than as beautiful. Who is God to you? And you know what you'll have? If you view God as as a as a king to obey, no matter how useful that obedience to you may be right now in this life. If you view life that way, you'll have what I call a fierce sense of peace as exemplified by the two midwives in this story. Let's continue in, the, in, in this story. Verse 15. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt, this pharaoh, right, that wanted to keep Israel small, that didn't want them to multiply, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named... Shifra and the other puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So take notice here. Two Hebrew women. One, they're a woman. A gender without much power at the time. Two, they're Hebrew, Israelites, the, the Jews here that are being enslaved. So, you know, based on The culture of the time, they were the wrong gender, they were the wrong race, and their midwives, their job didn't have much influence. But yet they stood up to a tyrant. And they said no. Why? Because they knew, my God's going to win this whole thing. My job is just to stay obedient to God. Even if by doing so I'm brought to the lowest of valleys, I mean, they risk their lives, their necks, by doing what they did. This obedience to God here could have led him to death. This is someone, Pharaoh, that nations bowed down to, but yet two women from the wrong race with low-income jobs stood up against. Why? Because God to them was not just a useful tool. God was their king. <laughs> and you know, people say, theology doesn't matter. Theology is just an airy concept out there. You know, it doesn't really affect our daily lives today. But the reason why these minority women were able to be so fierce is because of their theology. They feared God. They knew he's leading me to this valley low, this risky situation. If I obey God, I might die. But he's leading me here. He will be with me here. Even if my life was taken by Pharaoh, somehow, some way, God's reach goes beyond death itself, and I will be redeemed no matter how low the valley of obedience takes me. That's what you'll have if you stop using God to make you comfortable, but start worshiping Him as the king that He is. But you know what's hard about this? is the valley lows, if you're anything like me, it's hard. Because the valley lows sometimes are just too low. You know, I try, I try to obey God and forgive somebody, and I hoped for a mountain high top of reconciliation. But instead, it brings me down to a valley low of being taken for granted. Right? I try to obey God in conducting my business with integrity, but instead of gaining clients, I lose them to those who offer side benefits. I try to pursue romantic relationships in the way God has suggested they should be done and thinking that this is going to help up my game, you know. But instead, you find yourself to be marked off as old-fashioned and uptight. Or what would what the Israelites say here? You know, I obey God. I went to Egypt, but yet I found myself in slavery. Or the midwives, imagine what they felt when Pharaoh gave them that edict. You know, if I obey him here, it might lead me to death. What assurance do we have? we ask, in these moments of valley lows, what assurance do we have that if I follow him and if I obey his commands, even if he leads me down every valley low, what assurance do I have that he will deliver me out of them? That's what our hearts need, and that's what Moses communicates. Let's get to the last part of the passage. Third point, how he's going to shock him. How he's going to shock us. Now, this is probably the most popular story in the Bible. One of, right, I would say, the Exodus story and the Red Sea and all that, right? Christian Bale Played in a movie in it a couple years back. If, if you're not a Christian, you probably know it. If you are a Christian, you've probably read it, even studied it quite in depth a few times, right? All the way from chapter one to the Red Sea event. I have. I've studied it a couple of times, but I've missed this detail up till now. I've missed what God's trying to say here. Okay, it's because it's really hidden. It's really unexpected about how God will redeem his people. Let's look at it closer again. First, point out if this is a story, right, and you're in English class, Point out who the hero of this narrative is. God, yes. But in the human level, who's the hero of this narrative? The midwives are. Right? Moses named them in verse 15, uh, uh, Shifra and Puah. You don't get mentioned in the Bible unless you play some kind of notable, notable role in the storyline. Verse 20, God, you know, dealt well with the midwives. Verse 21, again, three times, the midwives are affirmed and acknowledged. Now, what's shocking about this redemption method is that God choosing the midwives to deliver his people from slavery? This is startling. This is sarcastic, even. Let me show you what I mean. Think about it. Why do you think Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill just the female babies and not the male babies? You know, verse 22 Then Pharaoh commanded uh, all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let the daughter live. Every daughter live. Why, was, why did he say that? The reason why Pharaoh was only concerned about the male babies is because he underestimated women. He thought only males can become strong warriors. He thought only males can become military threats. He thought only males can raise up an army that will overthrow Egypt. The females, the girls, let them live. They're, they're not a threat. They're weak. They're not a concern. But think about what God did here because the midwives refused to obey Pharaoh and obeyed God even when it risked their lives. Baby Moses was able to escape eventually. And because baby Moses escaped, Israel was eventually led out by Moses. So whose actions was it that sparked this rebellion, that sparked this exodus? It was the actions of these two Hebrew women that we don't know much about, mentioned here in Exodus one. You see how unexpected that is? Here here it is. The very weapon Pharaoh wanted to use to win his battle, the midwives, God ended up using to deliver his people. Isn't that a shocking irony? And look at verse 22 again. What was Pharaoh's method? This is another irony of winning his battle. What other means? So the midwives was one, the woman. What other means did Pharaoh use to kill the male children of Israel in verse 22? The Nile River water fast forward a few chapters what was it that God used to ultimately win this battle one of the most famous stories of the Bible perhaps how did God finally free his people out of Egypt Pharaoh was swaddled swallowed and drowned where the Red Sea using what water The very weapon Pharaoh wanted to use to win his battles, God used it to deliver his people. You see how unbelievably shocking that is? Sarcastic even. Ironic. What's Moses trying to say? If you adore God, not just as a tool that you find useful to to benefit your life, but as a king you find beautiful to follow, even when it leads you to valley lows, okay? It might cause pragmatic disadvantages of your life, And some valley lows are so low, you won't even be able to see how he's going to redeem you out of it. But do not underestimate him. He can do it, and he will do it. The method will be way beyond your expectation, and the result will be weirdly satisfying. Wasn't it a bit satisfying to see God use the woman Pharaoh underestimated to overthrow him? Wasn't that a bit satisfying? Yeah, you know? God here is telling Pharaoh... You knew baby king. (laughs) How dare you even try? And God here is telling his people, don't be afraid. Keep obeying me. I will deliver you even through this valley low. Here's the thing the million dollar question now, then. How do you know that you are categorized as his people? How do you know that you are going to be one of those that will experience the shocking end-day deliverance, you know, that God's going to reveal? You know, do we have to earn it? Do we have to be good enough and moral enough to do it, you know? Does being religious enough get us in? Not at all. Not at all. Look at at who was chosen. Let's go back to verse 1. Who was chosen to represent Israel in verse 1? Jacob. You remember Jacob's life? He was a manipulative thief. Remember what he did to Esau, his brother, in Genesis 27? He was a liar. He was a coward. And he was also a vain womanizer. You know, just read the way he treated Rachel and Leah in Genesis 29. Terrible dude. But yet in Genesis, you see God pursuing this guy. This is the guy God has set his mercy upon. He gave grace to this guy. He embraced this guy for himself. And now Jacob here in Exodus chapter 1 is used as the poster boy to represent all of Israel who weren't choice people either. Just a few chapters after this, after God delivered them out of Egypt, what do they do? They worship an idol, Baal. What's the message here? God is saying, I don't love my people. I don't love people because they've impressed me with their moral pedigree. That's not why they're in. They became my people because I have graciously, by my mercy and mercy alone, chosen wretched sinners in their weakness, in their sinful idolatry, to deliver them and embrace them and put my wings over them simply because I'm gracious. The question is still: How can a holy God overlook the insolence in Jacob's life and in my life? How can I be His when you you take a movie and make my life a movie? I'm not in. <laughs> Well, he didn't overlook our sins. He didn't just ignore him. He paid for him himself. Can you think of another time in the Bible where we find the most shocking, unexpected, ironic story of redemption, another one? Can you think of another time where a twist event like this happened? You know, Pharaoh here intended to use the midwives and water as weapons to win his battle, but yet God used Pharaoh's weapons to gain victory and free his people. What did the Romans use to win their battle against Jesus? What was their final blow? You know, what was their ultimate, most powerful tool of victory? The cross. And yet the New Testament says that God came down to us in the person of Christ And he was killed on the cross. He lost, right? Wrong. The weapon that we thought was going to defeat God, what did God do with it? He twisted it. He used it to win his own battle. To pay for our sins. For my sins. He used it to deliver us from the slavery of our sins and to the promised land. Why did God go through the trouble of sending these midwives to risk their lives to free his people? Why not just send firestorms from heaven? Because there's a greater message he wanted to communicate. He wants you to know that he himself will come down and not only risk his life to deliver his people, but give it to deliver his people. Pharaoh wanted to kill all the sons of Israel to thwart God's plan. You see how ironic that is? Who was it that came down to us on a cross? 1 John 4, 9-10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. No, we're messed up. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The ones who God embraced for himself are not the ones who have impressed God with their moral pedigree, but those who have embraced the unexpected, shocking, redemptive, ironic saving plan that he has accomplished for them on the cross. That's who's in. And that's the exclusive claim I'm often scared to say. Now, this should be encouraging For those who have truly received Christ as Lord and Savior. So encouraging. He's done it. It's finished. You're his. So keep going. Stay obedient to his word. And let God conduct the symphony. Obedience to him may lead you to high major notes. You know, where life is great. Well, good, good. But at times, it might lead you to low minor keys where life is pensive, and it feels like you're walking in mud, trust him still. Remember he has accomplished your redemption for you on the cross. Your deliverance is guaranteed, not because you've earned it, but because he's given it to you by his own sacrifice. The professor worded it so well once. He said, Jesus sat amidst the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I today can sit amongst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. But this should also be an invitation to you who are not in Christ, still exploring the gospel, figuring out what this whole Christianity thing is about, based on the Bible's claim here of what the world's all about, based on the grand narrative it's trying to say, what it's painting here is that there's no other way Why do you think Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me? Don't you see what I've done for you? God's saying here, come, rest, tarry no more. Believe and embrace this ironic, shocking deliverance that makes him the hero, gives him the glory, and not us. See, the cross... The degree in which you trust and rest in the shocking deliverance is the degree in which you will live your life with a fierce kind of peace that obeys God and gives him glory with all of who you are, no matter how low a valley that obedience may take you to. Because forever he is king who has won his victory by entering into lowest valleys for you. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your Son to enter into the lowest of all valleys. That our lowest valleys today compare nothing with the eternal Son absorbing all the wrath of the eternal Father. And we now may be led to valley lows, yes, but we have the confidence that because you've drank the full cup of wrath, we deserve for our sins, we have redemption in you, not because of our moral pedigree, not because we're any better, not because we've prayed or gone to church or read the Bible, but because of grace and grace alone. This is the only narrative in which you receive all honor, all glory, and all praise. This is the only narrative in which you become the hero and not us. This is the only narrative in which people like us can finally take our eyes off ourselves and look unto you let this mercy be real no preacher can make it real in the hearts of man i beg you father that you do so today so that you may forever be glorified jesus name we pray amen